Well, brethren, I'd like to ask you to turn with me, please, in your Bibles this evening to the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. Bruce mentioned this morning that one of the advantages of the new hymnal was that it had a larger font. And for those of us who are a little bit more advanced in years, we certainly appreciate uh, those who had the decision-making process and kind of incorporated that in their, in their decision. Uh, last night, when I was printing out the final copy of my sermon for this evening, I, I normally use a size 12 font. And after I finished and got it all printed out, I kind of held it out at arm's length in front of me, and I started to read it, and I thought, you know, I'm, I'm getting a little bit older. I'm not able to see like I was uh, the last time that I, that I printed out in that size. So I had to go back to my computer, upgraded it to a 14 font, and uh, now I can see a little bit better. So I was just uh, had a moment there that uh, I came face to face with the fact that the outward man is indeed perishing. But I'm thankful for the fact that though the outward man is perishing, you and I as believers have a living hope, don't we? And so uh, this evening I would like us to consider together something of that living hope that we have. Uh, all Everything around us is perishing, but we as the people of God have a hope in heaven. And so I want us to consider uh, during our time together a little bit about that living hope. First Peter chapter 1, our text will be from verses 3 through 5. So follow along with me please as I read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, brethren, before we look together at this passage of Scripture, let's once again bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the hope that we as believers have in Christ. And Lord, though all we, when we look around us and see the world around us fading away, and we look at our own bodies and realize that time is passing, that our time here is only but a vapor, about as long as, as the grass grows in the field, we know, Lord, that as we consider these things, that our hope is not bound up in the things of this world. But, Lord, we thank you for that hope that you have given us through Christ, that eternal inheritance, that hope that one day we will be made perfectly into the image of our Savior. And so, Lord, we pray that as we consider together these things this evening, that our hearts would be encouraged and built up. And, Lord, we pray with the psalmist, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. And we would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brethren, if you are at all familiar with the first epistle of Peter, you will know that this letter was written to believers who were scattered throughout the region of Asia Minor. And these people were experiencing continual suffering, trial, and persecution on account of their faith in the Lord Jesus. And Peter is writing this letter here to encourage them in the midst of these trials. 
and he reminds them constantly of the fact that while they are in the world, they are not of the world. They are strangers and foreigners here. They do not belong here, and that is why the world oppresses and hates them. Their citizenship is in heaven. Peter reminds them here in this text and in this epistle overall of who they really are as believers. He says that they are living stones. They are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood. They are a holy nation. And they are the people of God's own possession. And it is to such people that Peter is now seeking to write these words of encouragement and exhortation. And he begins this epistle by reminding them that as the children of God, that they are possessors of what he refers to here as a living hope. And we read this here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where Peter wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are reminded here in this statement that in accordance with the great mercy of God, that God has begotten us again unto a living hope. This word that is translated here living is a verb which literally and simply means to live. And it's used over 120 times in Scripture and is translated in other passages as live or alive or in some situations it is translated as quick. If you're here and you have the King James Version, you will notice that this word in the text before us is translated lively. God has begotten us again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And again, the word that Peter uses here simply means living or to live. And so with this in mind, let us begin by asking the question, what is it that Peter is referring to here when he tells us that you and I as believers have a living or a lively hope? Well, hope as defined by Mr. Webster is this. He says, hope is a desire for some good accompanied with at least a slight expectation of obtaining it or a belief that it is obtainable. Hope differs from wish and desire in this, that it implies some expectation of obtaining the good desired or the possibility of possessing it. Hope, therefore, always gives pleasure or joy, whereas wish and desire may produce or be accompanied with pain or anxiety. This is the first part of Webster's definition, and it is what we would call the general definition of hope. Now, all of us uh, believers and unbelievers alike have exhibited at one time or another this kind of hope, haven't we? We have desired something that was good, whether for ourselves or someone else, and have to one degree or another expected that we would obtain it. And this hope is almost always accompanied with a certain level of pleasure or joy at the mere thought of obtaining the thing that we hoped for. 
considering that young, consider that young couple who's expecting that first baby. Uh, what pleasure and joy they experience getting the nursery ready, uh, buying those baby clothes, uh, sitting together and going through the baby name book and trying to decide what would be the most appropriate name for their little boy or little girl. And they do all of these things without even being able to hold that little one. They have hope that that is going to come, and therefore they do those things. They have an expectant hope. And we can all think of other similar examples in our own experience. When you and I have truly hoped for something and have known the pleasure and joy that has come with the very prospect of obtaining it. But Mr. Webster, however, moves on from this general definition of hope to define hope according to the biblical understanding of the word. In other words, hope as it applies to the one who has truly been born again by the Spirit of God. He says that hope in this sense is by definition Confidence in a future event, the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good, a hope founded on God's gracious promises. A well-founded scriptural hope is, in our religion, the source of ineffable or inexpressible happiness. And Webster says here, and he's exactly right, that the, that the hope of the believer is different from all other hopes because of the fact that it is firmly founded in God and in his gracious promises that he has revealed to us in his word. That is a sure hope, brethren. It is a hope upon which we have a firm and unshakable assurance, and therefore it is, as Peter confidently referred to it, It is a living hope. It's not a hope that is cold. It's not a hope that is dead. It is not a hope that is inoperative. It was not a typical hope that was generally marked by mere sentimentalism, speculation, or form, but rather it was a hope that was active, it was powerful, and it had a profound effect upon every aspect of these believers' lives to whom Peter was writing. And as Webster rightly stated, this well-founded expectation of good that was based upon the gracious promises of God was a source of inexpressible happiness for these believers to whom the Apostle Peter was writing. It's true, is it not, that hope grounded in anything or anyone else especially as it relates to the well-being of one's eternal soul, is indeed a hope that can only be characterized as unfounded optimism, for which from an eternal perspective is no hope at all. And how often do you and I hear unbelievers around us, some of whom are very religious people, say that they all hope that it works out in the end. They hope that in the end God is going to favorably look at them and deal with them favorably because of their good works or because they hope in the claims of some other prophet or false deity that if they simply adhere to a list of demands that it's going to be well with their soul. 
Well, the Apostle Paul reminded the believers at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12 of the dreadful and hopeless state that they were in prior to their conversion to the Lord Jesus. He said to them that at that time, that is the time prior to their conversion, they were without Christ. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says to the Ephesian believers that before you came to know Christ, you were without him. You had no acquaintance with the Messiah. You had no knowledge of the Savior. You were unaware of God's gracious provision of an atonement for sin and therefore could have no assurance and no pardon from it. They lived in a state of spiritual darkness and condemnation and nothing but a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ could deliver them from that dreadful state. He reminded them further that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and they were strangers from the covenants of promise. They were ignorant of and therefore deprived of the benefits and the privileges and the blessings that belonged to the people of Israel, to whom were given, as Paul reminded the Roman believers, the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promise, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ came. And then if that wasn't enough, Paul adds these words, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope and without God. And that was the exact same state that each one of us were in at one time, weren't we, brethren? The natural man who is dead in trespasses and sins is without hope and without God in the world. And he is without hope because he is without God. And that is the tragic and miserable state that all who are without Christ find themselves in. But bless God that the opposite is true for those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God and are now the children of God. We are not in possession of a dead hope, a false hope, or an intangible hope. But brethren, we are the possessors of what Peter refers to here in our text as a living hope. And why is it a living hope? Well, consider with me now during the remainder of our time together four reasons that Peter gives here in our text as to why our hope as believers is indeed a living hope. Note with me first of all then, that our hope is a living hope because of the fact that God is the source and giver of it. Our hope is a living hope because God himself is the source and the giver of it. Immediately following Peter's introduction to this first epistle, he launches into this lofty note of praise directed specifically at the person of God the Father. And the reason why he does this is because of the glorious truth that God the Father is the one who is not only the source, but also the giver of our living hope. He says at the beginning of verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. Now we've already noted from Paul's words to the church at Ephesus that without God it is impossible for a true, genuine, living hope to exist in the soul of any man or any woman. It is simply impossible. In their lost condition, men and women are without hope and without God in the world, the Apostle Paul said. And the only way possible that we could ever possess a living, eternal hope is if God in his grace and mercy comes to us and gives it to us. There's no other way. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 and verse 13, the Apostle Paul there prayed, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And God is here identified by the Apostle Paul as the God of hope. This title implies that God is not only the source of all hope, which he is, but he is also the giver and dispenser of all hope as well. And since this is the case, Paul rightly prays that the source of hope would cause the believers in Rome to abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this same truth is presented here very clearly in the words of Peter. He praises the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God of all hope, for giving unworthy creatures such as you and I this living hope. And as God is the source and giver of this living hope, he reminds them of three things relating to this very important truth. First of all, he reminds them that this living hope is ours because of God's abundant mercy. This living hope is ours because of God's abundant mercy. As we mentioned earlier, as sinners, you and I could have no hope at all if it were not for the fact that God is a God who is merciful. Mercy is an attribute of God which gloriously shines forth through the pages of Scripture. If you would go from beginning to end, again and again, the Word of God makes it known to us very clearly that God is a merciful God. But not only does it remind us that God is merciful, but He is one who delights in mercy. Mercy is, as Thomas Watson rightly referred to it, God's, quote, darling attribute, which He most delights in. Micah chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever. Why? Because he delights in mercy. A.W. Pink calls this attribute of God his, quote, adorable attribute for which he is greatly to be praised. Psalm 136 and verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. The mercy of God flows from his goodness, and it demonstrates to all of us his ready and willing inclination to relieve the misery of poor, sinful creatures like you and I. 
It is an attribute that is intimately related to his grace in the sense that it is not in any way earned, but rather it is freely given to the objects of that grace. And so this living hope is ours because of the mercy of God. But note with me also the adjective that Peter uses here to describe that mercy. He says, according to his abundant mercy, he has begotten us again unto a living hope. God's mercy towards sinners is abundant. Elsewhere in Scripture, his mercy is described as great. It is described as plenteous. It is described as from everlasting to everlasting. This word means large in quantity or great in its scope. And when we consider the greatness of our own sin and high-handed rebellion against God, it is a glorious truth to meditate upon that though our wretchedness was great, the mercy of God was even greater. The hymn writer rightly stated, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view I'm lost in wonder, love, and praise. This living hope is ours because God, the God of hope, freely gives it to unworthy, hell-deserving sinners in accordance with the greatness of his mercy. And as a result, we have a living hope because God has exercised toward you and I, brethren, his abundant mercy. But not only is this living hope ours because of God's abundant mercy, but notice with me, secondly, that this living hope is ours because of God's regenerating grace. This hope is ours because of God's regenerating grace. It comes to us, Peter says, through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. That is how God quickens us. That is how God makes us alive. It is how our hearts that are dead in trespasses and sin are changed. It is at that moment when we are brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Peter says that God has begotten us again to a living hope. This term, begottenness, is a clear reference to the new birth. Thus, this phrase can be rightly understood to say that God, according to his abundant mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus was speaking about to Nicodemus in John 3, wasn't he? When he said that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is absolutely impossible for you and I to have any sure hope in this life and in that which is to come unless God by his spirit graciously removes our hard and stony heart and replaces it instead with a heart of flesh, a heart that is made tender and desirous after the things of the Lord. And so Peter says that we are begotten or we have been born again to a living hope. And this is accomplished through the regenerating work of the Spirit of God. But not only is this living hope ours because of God's abundant mercy and His regenerating grace, 
But Peter goes on to say that this abundant hope is ours because of God's preserving power. It is ours because of God's preserving power. If you look down a little further in the text to verse 5, Peter reminds these believers that those who are partakers of this living hope are assured of obtaining all that God has promised because of the fact that God is going to preserve them unto the very end. He says that they are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says we are being kept by the power of God. The term that Peter uses here is a military term, meaning to keep by guarding or to guard with a garrison. Its tense indicates that this is a continuous action. In other words, you and I as believers have the assurance of obtaining all that God has prepared and promised to those who are his because it is by God's power that we are continuously being kept and guarded throughout our earthly pilgrimage. Our hope then, brethren, is a lively or a living hope because we have a sure confidence in the fact that God who has begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have the confidence that our salvation is secure, that our glorification is assured, and our eternal inheritance is certain. And so then, this living hope is ours, first of all, because God is the source and giver of it. But secondly, I want us to note this evening from our text that this living hope is ours because of the fact that we have a living Savior. This living hope is ours because of the fact that we have a living Savior. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope. How? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As we read these words of Peter, it is vitally important for all of us to understand that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ was not a mere addendum to the saving work that he came here to accomplish. And while it is absolutely true, as the hymn writer rightly declared, that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus was absolutely necessary in order for his atoning work to be effectual on our behalf. Passages such as Isaiah 53, 11 and 12, and Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, make it abundantly clear that the resurrection was, as it were, God's stamp of approval upon all that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished, both in his life and in his death. And it was by raising Jesus from the dead that God was once again clearly proclaiming to all in heaven and on earth and in hell that he is well pleased and fully satisfied with all that his son has accomplished. Isaiah declared that he shall see of of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then Isaiah uses that word, therefore. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 picks up this exact same theme when he says that being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then here's that word again, therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Most assuredly, brethren, this living hope is ours because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what Peter is essentially saying here, brethren, is that you and I have a living hope on account of the fact that we have a living Savior. In other words, if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith as well as our hope, as the Apostle Paul declared to the Corinthians, is vain and we are all yet dead in our sins. He wrote, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. But not only is our hope secured by the resurrection, it is also a guarantee for the believer that one day our mortal bodies will be raised again and made like unto his glorious body. Our hope is a living hope because the resurrection of our Savior confirms for us that Christ's sacrifice for our sins was an indeed an acceptable sacrifice to God. And it guarantees for us that because Jesus lives, you and I who are believers will live also. But then I want you to note with me thirdly, our hope is a living hope not only because God is the source and giver of it, and our hope is a living hope because of the fact that we have a living Savior, but also Peter tells us here in, in the context that our hope is a living hope because the promises and purposes of God will most certainly stand. Our hope is a living hope because the purposes and promises of God will most sure, certainly stand. Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead, we have the assurance that all that God has purposed and promised for his people will most certainly come to pass. And the Apostle Peter here reminds his readers of two things that are central to their living hope. He reminds them, first of all, that God has promised a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. God has promised a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading. 
Peter says that God has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And we all know, brethren, don't we, that everything around us is perishing. It is defiled by sin. It is fading away. But we as believers do not hope in these things, do we? As the children of God, our hope is fixed upon a promised eternal inheritance. It is fixed upon a large estate, if you will. It is fixed upon a rich possession. And again, this was not obtained through any merit of our own or through the works of the law. Only the children of God who have been born again and adopted into his family, having been given all the rights and privileges of sonship, and in whose heart the Holy Spirit resides, who is the earnest of that promised inheritance. Only these have a just claim to it. And this inheritance, Peter says, is an inheritance that is incorruptible. In itself, this inheritance is free from corruption. And in addition to that, it cannot be corrupted by anything that is outside of itself. It is immune from the decaying and destructive effects of moth and rust, which temporal inheritances are subject to. And it cannot be enjoyed by corrupt persons, either those corrupted with sin or with those clothed with frailty and mortality. And that is why, in order to inherit it, God has ordained that corruption must put on incorruption in every aspect. And Peter is going to make reference to that glorious transformation and the timing of it in the next verse. And so this inheritance is an inheritance, Peter says, that is incorruptible. But Peter also reminds us that our inheritance is an inheritance that is undefiled. It is an inheritance that is pure. It is holy. It is an inheritance that is free from the defilement of sin. In fact, it cannot be defiled from sin. And furthermore, it cannot be possessed and enjoyed by anyone other than those who are undefiled, those who have been made so through the blood and righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an inheritance that will never be or can never be defiled by sin. But Peter goes on to say that our inheritance is also an inheritance that does not fade away. It is an inheritance that does not fade away. Unlike this world and all of the glory of it, whose inheritances and possessions will ultimately and quickly fade away, This inheritance that is reserved for the children of God will never diminish in any respect. It is an inheritance that is eternal. And then lastly, in describing this inheritance, Peter reminds us that it is an inheritance that is reserved in heaven for us. It is an inheritance that is reserved in heaven. The term reserved here means to guard or to keep something. 
Many of us have been on the road traveling, and, and many times what we do is we call ahead to some hotel, and we ask them to reserve a room for us. And what we are effectively doing is asking them to guard or to keep a room in anticipation of our arrival at the end of the day. Well, in the same manner, Peter is saying here that our inheritance is being guarded. It is being kept. It is being reserved. And though at times, for one reason or another, we have experienced disappointment when we've arrived at our destination and find out that the hotel manager or whoever it was that we spoke to has failed to guard or to keep that room that we were told had been reserved for us, you and I as believers have the unwavering assurance that our inheritance, which is incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, is secure for us because God himself is the one who is reserving it. He is the one who has promised it. He is the one who has secured it for us through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has given us his spirit, who is the divine pledge of that inheritance. And he is the one who is guarding and keeping it for those who are the heirs of salvation. And where is it that Peter says that this inheritance is reserved? It is reserved, he says, in heaven. It is reserved in a place that is out of the reach of men and devils. It is far removed from the corruption and the defilement and the passing nature of this world. It is being kept and guarded in a place that is safe, it is secure, and it is infinitely glorious. And brethren, this belongs to you and I, doesn't it? It belongs to us. Have we even begun to grasp all that has been secured for us in Christ? Can we even begin to fathom the length and the width, the depth and the height of all that God has prepared for those who love him? Well, the simple answer to that question is a resounding, no, we haven't. And in our present state, it is impossible to even begin to fully comprehend it. The Apostle Paul himself admitted this when he reminded the believers in Corinth that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the, thing which, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And so God has not only promised a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, but he has also purposed a salvation that is ready to be revealed Peter says, in the last time. God has purposed a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Our glorification, brethren, is absolutely certain. All of those whom God has predestined, who he has called, who he has justified, most certainly will be glorified. And Peter reminds these believers that what God has begun in them and for them he will most certainly bring it to completion at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says concerning these believers to whom he is writing that they are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
And here Peter is pointing forward to the return of Christ when the dead in Christ will be raised and their bodies along with the bodies of those believers who are alive at his coming. In that moment they will be changed when mortality will be exchanged for immortality and our bodies will be made like unto the glorious body of our Lord and Savior. And it will be then that our salvation will be fully realized And we will throughout eternity rejoice in and experience in all of its fullness the things that God has mercifully prepared for those who love him. But then note with me lastly from our text the fact that our hope is a living hope because of the response that it rightly produces in the soul. Our hope is a living hope, brethren, because of the response that it rightly produces in the soul. In consideration of this living hope that we as believers have, what ought the response of our hearts to be in light of it? Well, Peter again reminds us here in the text of what that response ought to be. He says that our lives ought to be marked by God-honoring worship. In light of this glorious hope that we have as believers, our lives, first of all, ought to be marked by God-honoring worship. For the Apostle Peter, as well as every believer, the first response that this living hope ought to produce in the soul is God-honoring worship. As we consider the fact that God, who is the source of all hope, and has given us this living hope through his unmerited, regenerating, and preserving grace, and that it is our hope by virtue of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in addition to that, we have the confidence that the purposes and promises concerning our future inheritance and glorification will most certainly come to pass. What ought our response in light of these things to be? Well, Peter demonstrates for us very clearly here in, that te- in our text what that response ought to look like. These things will elicit God-honoring worship from the heart of the believer that will express itself both inwardly and outwardly in praise and adoration that is directed to God who has so graciously given this hope to us. And as his heart reflects on these glorious realities relating to this living hope that we as believers in Christ possess, Peter cannot contain himself. As he himself meditates upon these wonderful realities, the apostle immediately launches into this heartfelt expression of praise and worship by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the proper response of all who by God's grace have been made the recipients of this living hope. But not only ought our lives to be marked, brethren, by God-honoring worship, but secondly, our lives ought to be marked by unspeakable joy. If we are possessors of this living hope, Peter says, our lives ought to be marked by unspeakable joy. In consideration of this living hope, Peter continues down in verse 6 by pointing out the response that was clearly evident in the lives of these believers to whom he is writing. 
He says, in this you greatly rejoice. In what did they greatly rejoice? Well, in the context, they rejoiced in the hope of eternal salvation, in the glorious prospect of a future inheritance. These things were to them the source of highest joy. It comforted them, it sustained them, and it enabled them to rejoice even in the midst of tremendous trial and suffering and persecution. Peter says in verses 6 and 7, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But not only then should this living hope produce within us God-honoring worship and unspeakable joy, but brethren, it should also cause us to desire after genuine holiness. This living hope that God has given to us should cause us to desire after genuine holiness. Peter addresses this matter a little later on in the chapter. In light of all that he has set up to this point, he exhorts these believers down in verses 13 through 16. Therefore, in light of all these things that I've said, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And though our time is about gone, and we are not able to fully expand these words of the apostle this evening, It is clear from this statement that there is a close connection between the believer's hope and what Peter refers to as the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ and personal obedience to the commands of Christ. John makes this similar connection over in 1 John chapter 3 and verses 2 and 3 where he says there, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then John doesn't stop there, but he continues on by saying this, that everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. The supreme desire and hope of any true believer is to be like Christ. And if you are here this evening, that ought to be our most highest hope, our highest aim. And that is that we might be like our Savior. All of our aspirations as it relates to the world to come can be summed up in this statement that we long to be glorified, we long to be like the glorified Son of God, and throughout eternity share in His honors and His joys. Bottom line, brethren, that is the essence of our hope. And since that is the case, 
both Peter and John make it abundantly clear that such a hope will most certainly lead the child of God to earnest efforts to become holy like our Savior. Not that we're going to perfectly reach that here in this life, but we press forward daily with the help and strength of the Spirit of God, confident that one day when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, in closing, let all of us who are indeed the children of God always be mindful of the fact that it is this living hope and our response to it, which is marked by worship, joy, and purity of conduct, that will cause the world to look on with wonder and amazement and be made to inquire of us the reason of the hope that is within us. Peter exhorted these believers a little later on in chapter 3 and verse 15 to be prepared to give an answer or be prepared to give a defense to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Notice he doesn't say that they're going to ask a reason as to why we're so involved in church. He doesn't say that they will ask maybe about our faith or even about what it is that we believe. Now, they may ask us about those things, but Peter reminds them that the one thing that will make a hopeless world stop, sit up, and take notice is the clear demonstration of a living, vibrant, joyful, life-changing hope manifested daily in the life of the child of God. Hope is what the world around us so desperately needs, and may we be ready and eager always to give an answer to such an inquiry with a gentle and a reverent spirit, that others may come to know the same living hope that you and I, by the grace of God, have come to possess. I don't know if you're familiar or not at all with the conversion experience of of John Bunyan. John Bunyan, most of you know, was uh, most uh, commonly known for his writing of the Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War. Uh, In in mentioning in his uh, biography about, about his conversion experience, he was talking about that day when one day from going door to door in Bedford, England, he was a tinker, And he would go from door to door and he would mend or sell pots for people. Uh, Nowadays, when our pots are done, we basically toss them in the trash can. But back then, there was a person that came around from door to door asking you if your pots needed to be mended or you would like to buy a new one. And that was the business that John was in. And so John said that uh, one day as he was plying his trade in the town of Bedford, he came upon three women who were standing there talking, and one of the women had just undergone a great loss in her life. Uh, the government authorities came into her home. She owed, or she owed some back taxes. They came into her home, and they forcibly removed many of the things that were in her house. And so as she was considering what she was going to do in light of that great physical loss, She said to the other women that were there, and and Bunyan was standing there hearing what it was that she was saying. This woman said to the other women, 
that as she considered her loss, she said, the sweet mercy and comfort of Jesus rose upon me until I felt that it mattered little what men took from me so that they left me Christ and his divine grace and mercy. Bunyan said that she continued on by saying, as she meditated upon these things, Oh, I was strong in him, and I felt his sweet comfort down in my poor heart, and I felt as if I must shout to the clouds of the gladness that burned like fire in my bones. Bunyan saw that this woman had a living hope in spite of all of the things that had been taken from her. She had a hope that Bunyan knew in his heart he did not have, and it was something that was unspeakably attractive to him. And Bunyan said, as she heard those words, it seemed to me as if they were in another world far above me, yet their words were sweet to me like the droppings of the honeycomb. And so he asked these women to tell him how he might obtain this hope that they had. And it wasn't long after that that he came to a glorious knowledge, that he was converted and came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Well, brethren, may God grant that many of us would be given such an opportunity, even this coming week, to share with those who have no hope around us the hope that you and I possess because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And may God be pleased to draw many sinners to himself through our witness of his glorious grace. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this evening for the hope that you have given hopeless creatures such as us. And Lord, when we consider that before we came to know you, we were without Christ, we were without hope, we were without God in the world. And Lord, by your grace and mercy, you saw fit to reveal uh, your Son to us and the glory of all that he had accomplished on our behalf and the hope that we can have in the future through what he has accomplished on Calvary's cross. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled with praise and adoration to yourself. We pray that our hearts would be filled with unspeakable joy. And Lord, we pray that with all of our hearts, we desire to be more and more like our Savior. And we pray, Lord, that as we go from this place, we would ask that you would be pleased to uh, give us opportunity to give an answer for the reason of the hope that is within us to those around us who do not know you. And Lord, we would ask this evening for any in our midst who as of yet do not know you, any who may be yet without Christ and without hope, we pray that in your grace and mercy your spirit would work within their hearts to convict and convince them of their sin. And Father, we pray that even this day that they might go down to their house justified. Father, we pray these things to the end that your name might be glory, glorious, glorified, and we pray that these things would be done for the good of never-dying souls. We would ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.